Have you ever looked at someone who is a corporate practitioner or a business owner and was curious about their journey, what they've experienced, their passion projects, and the practices that have helped them be successful in their work? The Formula Exchange Podcast is the place where the inner genius of our guest meets your curiosity. Our podcast episodes are quick chats geared towards revealing the person behind the LinkedIn profile. You'll quickly discover and learn about their journey what they're doing, and our guests will leave you with a formula to help you conquer your next. I'm your host, Dr. Lenny Cook. Rafi Chowdhury is a writer and a regular contributor to publications such as Huffington Post, Thoughts Catalog, and Business.com. He is also a recruiter for Rent Stand and Google, and in his free time, he loves playing competitive chess. So in today's session, we're going to talk strategy, and we're going to explore chess mastery and its translation into business and professional development. So what's the big deal about chess? Well, since the 6th century AD, chess has been a household game played by hundreds of millions of people worldwide. The question is, what about chess has made it stand the test of time among hundreds and thousands of board games that have come and gone? Join me as I delve into the numerous reasons why people play chess and learn what scientists have to say about chess and cognition. Hey, Rafi, how are you? How's it going? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Lynn? Uh, Things are going very well. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you about um, all the myriad of things that you have going on, but most importantly, chess, right? So, you know, just a quick reminder, you are a writer, a regular writer for Huffington Post, um, for um, who else? Thought Catalog, business.com. You are a recruiter as well for um, for Google, as well as Brandstead. Um, And so with that said, um, how have you, how did you begin to do what you're doing now? Sure. Um... So I feel like a lot of these things sort of like fell into my lap as I was just out and exploring and just kind of putting myself out there, so to speak, like exposing myself to as many things as I can. Um, I'll start with chess. I ran into chess when I was, I want to say I was around 10 when I just moved to the U.S. And, you know, at the time I didn't really have a whole lot to do because I barely even spoke English at the time. So I got to spend a lot of time at home with my dad and my uncle. And so my dad at the time was living in New York while I was living in Memphis with my family, with my uncle and um, my mom and some other family members there. So basically anytime my dad came into town, he would basically say, hey, let's, you know, let me teach you this game. So he taught me chess. He and my uncle together basically taught me the game. So ever since then, I basically got hooked to the game because I just, you know, didn't have a whole lot to do. And I had a small little computer that my uncle owned at the time. And it had a small, very primitive like type of chess program. So I just kept playing that program over and over again. And before long, I was very hooked to the game, was playing against, you know, challenging all of my family members to a game. Anytime I would go out to a party with somewhere with my parents, I would always challenge some of the adults to a game of chess. I would take my little chess board to school all the time and play against some of my, you know, classmates. So that's pretty much how I got my start in chess. It wasn't until about I turned 15 when I first actually played chess in a tournament. Um, Up until that time, I kind of played against friends and family. And at that time, I was basically thinking, like, I must be the best chess player in the world because I barely ever lost any games at all. Like, everyone I would play against, in my family at least, and and among friends, I would beat them. So I was like, holy crap, I might actually secretly be the best chess player there is. I, I may not even know it. So then I reached out to a chess club 
just by Googling some near me. And I went and I played and I actually managed to win all of my first games as well in my first tournament. So it was really interesting. Um, I felt even, you know, a great boost of confidence. But the very next tournament, I actually massively lost so many games, like did horrible. That's when the reality kind of, you know, sunk into me like, okay, so I guess I'm not the best chess player in the world. Like I just haven't played much better competition just yet. So pretty much that's how the chess came about. And since then I've been hooked and I played many tournaments after that. Um, as far as the recruiting and the marketing and those kind of things. Um, so I had, a, I had a background in psychology in, in college where I studied like cognitive science. And so after that, I was very much into the, you know, I launched my own business base or my own website essentially about chess. So from there, I started learning about blogging and those kind of things. Then I got into marketing and I was, as I was doing marketing, which I did you know, professionally for about five years. Um, a friend of mine from the marketing world kind of reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever considered recruiting as a profession? It kind of takes a lot of your background in marketing and, you know, I had a little bit of background in sales as well. So it kind of merges the two things together. So once I, you know, got a chance to talk to him, I accepted my first, uh, first job as a recruiter. Um, and then since then, I've pretty much been in the recruiting world and, and I really enjoy it. That's kind of how I landed into each of those careers. So what's something about your personal journey that's important for our audience to know? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I would say is like, I always knew like maybe subconsciously that I need to expose myself to as many things as quickly and early as possible. So just exposure. Um, a lot of times I would take on projects or have conversations with people, even if I had a feeling that this probably wasn't going to go anywhere. So it's kind of like a concept in sales is that you should never, you know, judge a person, your, your prospect based on how they look or what they drive or how they act, because you never know who's going to become your customer. At the end of the day, you never know who's going to be that, you know, kind of raggedy looking person, but because becoming is going to have the money to buy your product from you. And so I kind of took that approach to the business world as well. I just never underestimated any sort of like conversation or any people. I kind of, you know, as much as I would, my time would allow, I would say yes to conversations. And I think that really helped me a lot because it kind of opened up new doors and opportunities for me. Um, the second thing I would say is I never stopped like learning and growing. Like that was the biggest thing for me is I've always read books. Like, I mean, I have a, you know, a membership on Audible and just about every week I pretty much finish at least one book consistently I've been doing that for the past at least three years now and I think even before that I was reading a lot and I think that exposed me to a lot of new ideas so as you as I come across a new idea in a book I would basically start exploring the idea by googling it or by asking other people about it things like that so it just kind of ran me into different ideas and concepts so I think I would share like you know those two things is just really important is just exposing yourself to lots of different people and ideas and then also just consistently and you know constantly reading, you know, whether it be books and, you know, I don't know, it could be podcasts, could be blog posts, but you just have to constantly learn new ideas and dabble into them. Yeah. And I know this is just kind of random based off of you sharing that you love to read and that you finish a book like every week, basically. Um, what What is one of your most recent reads that is really just something that you're kind of muddling over that's so meaty and, um, just, you know, make cause of great shit for you in your own personal practices. Sure. Um, 
I recently read a book called Why We Sleep. Hmm. Um, and I already forgot the name of the author. I'm going to look it up real quick. <laughs> it's a really, really good book. Um, it's by um, Matthew Walker, actually, is the, is the author. And so, um, you know, it's, I basically very much underestimated sleep most of my life. Like, I think a lot of us do that. We think of all these things like, yeah, exercise is great for us. A good diet is good for us. Um, we're taught about, you know, mental health and all these kind of things, but we are not often taking it seriously, like how detrimental sleep can really be to our body and to our overall cognitive health. Um, so biggest takeaways from the book is first of all, sleep affects way more, you know, areas of your life than you can imagine than I imagined ever actually. And so I, when I understood like so many different things are affected and to a such, such, such a huge degree by sleep. It just was kind of like an eye opener for me. Um, I do think there's a lot of books and uh, a lot of facts in the book or stated facts in the book that are, I don't know like to what extent they are research verified per se, but the book does its job of making people aware and making people aware of the importance of sleep. And that's exactly what it did for me. And so, yeah, it taught me about, you know, the importance of sleep. As a result, I basically completely gave up caffeine in, of any type. And oh. I, I, I have amazing sleep now. You know, I sleep a solid eight and a half or so hours every night, pretty much. Um, and I think it's, it's really improved my mood overall, my performance in my chess tournaments, you know, even my performance at work. So that would be one book that I read recently that I think would be a, a really good one for any kind of marketer, entrepreneur, any kind of professional really to, to, to read and look into. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially since we're going to kind of delve a little bit deeper into chess and cognition. So the fact that you're looking at sleep and you're utilizing practices from the book that you read to improve your performance and cognition is, is really, you know, a fascinating find. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so you did mention before that you tried your hand in entrepreneurship. So my question to you is, while you were trying your hand in entrepreneurship, what are a few of the things that you experienced? Yeah, there's a lot to learn from starting a business from the ground up, I think. And I think everyone should do it, whether they fail or succeed, stay with it or not. I think everyone should go through that experience just to understand what it's like from, from that side of it. And for me, you know, I mean, I learned a lot just to, just to kind of distill that into like a few nuggets. I would say the ability to like very quickly execute. I think that's going to be really important, especially for a lot of like maybe corporate minded listeners that are listening. Like we tend to have this idea in corporate culture, you know, like things are, things move in a kind of like a slower pace. And there's a lot of like formalities and systems that you have to kind of take things through that are assumed. Um, in the startup culture, you're basically like, you know, you, you don't really ask for permission. You ask for forgiveness. You just kind of go ahead and execute on things and move to the next step, whatever it might be. And then later you go back and you fill in all the details or do the formalities and things like that. I think that's like one of the biggest skill sets I picked up is just knowing like, Hey, I need to take ownership of the work stream. I need to figure out like, this is the, this is the goal that I have been presented with. And I might get stuck here and there, but I cannot, if I don't hear from someone, I can't let that stop my project or move forward. If I can't do it in, you know, this way, I got to find another way, but I, whatever I do, like I have to keep moving the, the work stream forward. So I think that's a big skill set I picked up. Um, the second thing I would say is like the power of like networking. 
you know, as an entrepreneur, like if you, when you're starting your own business, like you have to know a lot of people, you have to know your vendors, you have to know your, you know, potential uh, investors, you've got to know your customer base, you've got to have a sales team, you got to really know how to work with other people well, whether it be your employees or vendors or whatever else. And I think I got really good at doing that just because, you know, you're on your own, like you're having to convince people to work for you and with you. You're constantly having to convince customers to buy your product or your service. You're constantly having to sell yourself everywhere you go. And so I think that just that really formed like my salesy sort of like personality, you know, it helped me with like being just like being, being able to very quickly speak and get you know ideas across, being able to quickly reach out to people that are very different from I am and being able to still quickly connect with them. I think all those kind of skill sets I would, I would tie back to entrepreneurship. And also the most important thing I would say that I learned is like now that I'm on the other side of it as an employee, I get where the employer is coming from. Like I can understand how the boss sees things, you know? And so I think that's huge. Like once you know, like what it's like to be on the other side of the table, you will have a much better appreciation for the person that's actually hiring you and what they have to go through in, in order to make that work. So whenever I work with a small business owner, like, you know, if I'm working with them as a consultant or if I'm in my current job, when I'm working on my, with my leadership team, like I can kind of figure out, you know, and quickly understand like what it's like to be in their seat just because of my experience being in their shoes basically at some point. Yeah, I love that. Um, you said a couple of things and I, there's a, I think it's Seth Golden who says that the person who fails the most actually becomes the most successful because, you know, that failure actually allows them to um, pivot and learn and explore, you know, options and opportunities and then um, adjust accordingly. Um, so, you know, you just mentioned um, the ability to quickly execute, right? And, and so I, I really just kind of see that play out in entrepreneurship over and over again. Um, and then in terms of your networking, I really love how you just mentioned how you gain a number um, a depth in perception. Um, is there a key that you you find to being able to connect with people or network? Yeah, I think um, it really depends on like the scenario, you know, but just some general guidelines would be like I seek to first understand and then be understood. I believe that's like a, I don't know, Dale Carnegie or Stephen Covey quote or something like that. But, it, but the, the whole idea here is that like you want to first tell them how interested you are in what they're doing. Like be interested in that person and what their work is. One of the best ways to do that is actually, you know, kind of like this, just reaching out to people and just interviewing them. People love talking about their, themselves. People love talking about their work. People love, people love it when you're interested in what they're doing. Simple as that. So if you want to make a connection with someone, just be interested in what they're doing and show interest in that. And there will always be something that will come from that. The second thing that I would say is like really utilizing the Benjamin Franklin effect to your advantage. It's a, it's, it's a bias, a psychological bias. It basically comes from Benjamin Franklin, who was, um, you know, trying to basically get his like, enemies to like him more. And he did that by basically getting them to do favors for him. It's a really strange phenomenon, but it's a very powerful one. Basically, if people invest in you, they'll like you more. So it's basically a situation where you have to kind of like invest in them and then somehow get them to invest a little bit in you, do a little bit of small favors for you. And you do another big favor for them, 
let them to give them a chance to do a favor for you. The reality is that we like people the most, like we like people who we have invested in the most instead of the other way around. So that's why your parents will almost always love you more than you love your parents. You would think it would be the other way around. Parents have done more for the kids than kids have usually done for the parents. But the, the way it works is that because parents have done more, they have more to lose if you don't become successful or something happens to you. As a result, they're more invested in you, so they'll like you more. So if you could do that with maybe a influencer or maybe a mentor or someone like that that you're reaching out to, get heavily involved in their projects, get them to help you out along the way. As a result, you will forever pretty much have them because they will feel like they now have to continue helping you or else they feel like they will have lost out on something. That's fascinating. So in psychology, it's two principles that's at play there. Is One is the law of reciprocity, where people want to reciprocate. You give into them, you give something to them, and then they naturally just want to reciprocate a gift back to you, whatever that looks like. And then also I, I'm hearing like um, the law of micro commitments, where people make a smaller commitment to you. And then it just kind of creates a, um, I guess, a snowball effect of continued commitments and follow through. So that's really fascinating. Exactly. That. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing. I've never actually heard about the Benjamin Franklin effect. So I'm actually going to explore that a little bit deeper. Thank you for sharing that. So going back to you, you mentioned being genuinely interested in what you know, a person or a prospect is interested in. And actually, uh, Rafi, that's why you're on the podcast, because I'm genuinely interested in something that you're really passionate about. Do you want to talk a little bit more about chess and um, why you're passionate about it and how it's translated into your professional experience? Of course, of course, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I got interested in chess as a result of boredom, as I noted earlier. Um, mm -hmm. But really, the appreciation for the game really came to me, like I would say about two years ago when mm -hmm. I picked up, basically after I played, you know, I, I told you I played all the way through college and, or sorry, through high school. And then like my second year of college, I actually left the game completely. Um, I didn't play for eight years after that. Wow. And so I just picked the game back up again, like two years ago. And this time, like I appreciate it a lot more than I did back in my younger years. So in my younger years, it was more so like, you know, just um, uh, something that I can do to pass a lot of time, something that kind of kept me motivated, gave me a goal. And I also really enjoyed like the idea of, you know, how chess gave me a community to be a part of. Um, it had a, a sort of like a structure and discipline. I enjoyed those. But today I look at the game a lot more, uh, a lot differently, and I see a lot more value in it. Chess teaches you things like, um, you know, like a blunder paradigm it, it, like a blunder con, uh, consequence paradigm, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So like in no other game, do you see a most direct effect of a blunder? Like if you make a mistake, I mean, at, especially at my level, chances are your, your opponent is going to punish that mistake immediately somehow. And so you get to, get to see the effects of, you know, that move you might've made on like move three, you know, you moved a pawn in front of your king, right? Which made a small little weakness around your king, you know, come back like 20 moves later, that, that one little move now you can understand how it totally messed up your entire, you know, sort of your structure and your formation. And now all of a sudden your king is totally unsafe and, and blasted open and it is under attack, right? So like understanding how very small actions or lack of actions can later down the road have major consequences and detrimental effects 
is seen in chess, but also seen in business and in life. Just to relate it back to the business world, for example, like say you launch a new company, you do everything right, you you know you raise venture capital, and you you're on your way to great success. You forget to you know patent your technology, right? Then someone comes around behind you and just takes your whole technology and you know makes a patent on it, and next thing you know that you're basically you know you're you're rendered useless now. Your products are now they own the technology for that and they have all the rights to sell everything and you have no choice but to sell out to them. That's a small little mistake, but a large price to pay a few years down the road, possibly. So I think that just chess kind of like teaches your brain to think in that kind of way. I have to always think about, okay, this move may look harmless today, but could it in the future come back to bite me somehow? You know, so chess basically, that's why it's really important because chess in chess, we follow like principles like we do principled things. Like these are the good things to do. Like in the beginning of the game, you want to control the center of the board. You want to quickly get your pieces out. You want to get your castle, you know, king to safety by castling the king. You want to activate those rooks. If you don't follow those rules, you get in trouble. But with every rule, there are also exceptions, right? So just like in life, like, yeah, generally speaking, you're supposed to get a go get a great job. You're supposed to get a graduate degree. You're supposed to get married. You're supposed to go to, you know, church or mosque or wherever. But there are always exceptions. There are always scenarios where you don't have to do those things or you have to do it in a slightly different way. So being open to doing that and looking at each and every scenario and kind of going through those set of questions and then coming to a conclusion based on how you answered those questions, I think is a really important skill set that chess has taught me and is you know, very translatable to other areas of life as well. Yeah, so what's one of the things that you find people misunderstand about chess? Like you've just said so much about the benefits of it. Um, I guess for a person on the outside looking in, what do you tend to find the typical thing that people misunderstand about chess? Well, people think that chess takes a long time to play. <laughs> but that's, um, that's not true. You can have it, you know, when I play chess online, I don't play these much off very often, but there are some people that play games that last no more than 30 seconds. The entire game is 30 seconds. It's called like ultra bullet. There's also a very common variant of chess called bullet chess, which is basically each side has one minute on their clock. And the whole game is basically two minutes. Whoever wins in two minutes, that's it. Time runs out, you lose the game. So chess doesn't have to be a really boring, long drawn game. If you just introduce a clock to your chess game, whereas where basically there are two clocks, whenever you make a move, you hit your clock, which basically stops your timer and starts your opponent's. When they make a move, they hit the clock, which stops their timer and starts yours. So you can really speed up the game that way, and you can play against your grandfather or whoever takes forever to make a move. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first biggest conception. The second conception is that misconception is that chess um, chess is for smart people, or playing chess makes you smart. I don't think that either of those things are necessarily true. Um, I, first of all, I, I don't think that smart people only play chess because there are plenty of people that play chess that outside of chess, I would say that they're not, they wouldn't be considered necessarily like successful by our worldly definition of success. Um, but whether playing chess actually makes you smarter in that sense, like it, you know, does it improve your, I don't know, general intelligence, fluid intelligence, crystallized intelligence. It's also not so clear. Um, there's a lot of conflicting studies on that. I do think that there are some benefits cognitively of playing chess in terms of just the translation of the skills to other areas, just the way of thinking. Um, but does it directly affect your cognitive abilities? I think there's a lot of misconception there. I, I, the research right now does not show any sort of concrete 
benefit in that sense of chess. But regardless, what I think chess really brings a lot of value, especially for younger people, is that it teaches you a structured way of thinking and problem solving, which is super important later down the line. And it also teaches you a blunder consequence paradigm. And it teaches you how to narrow down your search tree of different options and narrowing it down to just a very few candidate options. In a chess, it would be candidate moves. So knowing how to take all the different options that life gives you, this party that you're invited to, this job opportunity you're invited to, this person you think you want to marry, knowing how to like narrow it down just a couple of things. Okay, I got 10 things, but by using process of elimination and my heuristical principles, I narrowed it down to three things. Now it's much easier and faster for me to make a decision. Mm, that's fascinating. So you spent a lot of time just kind of, you know, learning the game and then learning to master the game, right? So can you talk to me a little bit about what the rising in the ranks of chess looks like? Sure. So first of all, I would like to note that I'm not a chess master just yet. <laughs> I'm working on that goal right now. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting very close to it. And hopefully I'll, I'll crack that in the next uh, year or so. That's is my goal. Um, as far as like the ranks of chess, you know, you pretty much learn the game of chess, how the pieces move. It's not very difficult to learn. It's very easy to learn as a matter of fact. Um, then, you know, in chess, basically there are two primary organizations in the US. There's the United States Chess Federation, which basically encompasses all of the official, you know, it's the official body of chess of the, in the U.S. And there's also an organization called FIDE, which basically I think stands for like Federation, Federation, the International, the Etches, which basically is like, you know, the international body of chess. Um, so basically there are ratings in chess and a rating is basically a reflection of how good you are compared to everyone else in chess if that gives you, it's not necessarily a ranking per se. It's a, it's, it's like a, it's a reflection of how good your game is compared to other people that are also in that rating pool, so to speak. Um, so, you know, a beginner chess player just learn the games of chess game of chess will probably be rated somewhere between a hundred to like maybe 700 or so. Then as you get better at chess, you increasingly, you know, you kind of increase that um, as you have like deeper layers of understanding of the game. Once your rating uh, gets to 2000, United States Chess Federation rating 2000, the United States Chess Federation gives you your first um, sort of like unofficial title. You could say you're considered a chess expert at that point. Like if you go to a chess tournament or somewhere else, or you know, you can you can call yourself an expert. You've le like learned the game well enough to where you're better than you know about 95% of all competitive chess players. Um, then after that, once your rating gets to about 2200, the U USCF basically considers you a national master. That's the first official title that USCF does give out where you get a certificate and, you know, the title is attached to your name wherever you go to play at a chess tournament or wherever you go. Um, and then after that, USCF does give a senior master title at 2400. And then um, that's pretty much the extent of the USCF titles. The titles that people are most more familiar with would be like grandmaster and international master. So those are titles given out by the international body of chess, where basically after your rating, you know, gets to 2300 FIDE, you get the FIDE master title. When you get to 2400, you get the FIDE international master title. Plus there are norms. There are basically qualifications that you have to meet, like certain performances you have to accomplish in certain tournaments of certain caliber. Um, and then the last and final title in chess would be the grand master title, which is pretty much the highest title you can get in chess, which means that, you know, you're better than just about 
99.9999% of chess players in the world, you have achieved, you know, certain levels of um, success in your tournaments by defeating other grandmasters and international masters. The tournament has to, you know, be of certain caliber, so on and so forth. There's a whole list of qualifications that you basically have to meet. Just to, to put it simply, like, there are basically, I think, like, only like 300 or not, not even 300, like 200 something grandmasters in the whole world. Like there's not that many of them basically. So it's very, very hard. <laughs> yeah. So you had when, before, when we were talking about chess, right, you had, and I took notes, right. You, you likened, um, the, you likened chess to how it can consume your life, right. Just as a profession. And then you kind of compare that to like, you know, let's say professional basketball playing like the NBA, right. You want to talk about that a little bit, just to kind of add another layer of perspective to what it looks like rising to the ranks of chess. Sure. Yeah. To put it in perspective, let's just put it this way. Um, there are, more NBA players right now playing in the NBA than there have ever been grandmasters in the history of chess ever. So it is way harder to become a chess grandmaster than it is to become an NBA player if you put it in perspective side by side. Um, so in comparison, if we're using basketball, I would say a chess expert would be like considered essentially one of the best high school basketball players in the entire region. Like in, let's just say within your state, you're one of the top basketball players, like definitely in the top 5%, I would say. At a chess master, like 2200 rating, uh, rating level, um, you would be essentially like considered like a division one, division one college basketball player. I would say you're at that level in, compar in comparable chess strength. Um, once you get to about a senior master, so about 2,400 in rating, um, I would say that's considered like you're one of the top 20 college basketball recruits for this upcoming year, pretty much. Um, and then once you get to about grandmaster level, you could say that you are, I wouldn't even say an all-star. I would say you're like all-star starter <laughs> in chess, pretty much, is what that would be equivalent of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just fascinating because it just shows you the amount of, you know, skill and dedication and just personal growth and transformation that, you know, people take or undertake in order to master chess. Right. Um, so one of the things that um, I wanted to be able to do for our audience is kind of help them understand um, how they could glean value from chess. Right. So. With that said, um, in what ways can the Formula Exchange audience glean value from chess and the concepts found within chess? Sure. So we like to say in the chess community that chess is an art, it's a sport, and it's a science all at the same time. So if, you, if we break it down, chess is an art form because you get to use your creativity. You get to choose what kind of openings you want to play and how you, know, you want to approach the game. So it gives people a chance to be creative, you know, to think of very obscure ways of playing chess. And chess is also a, a sport because you have tournaments that you go to, you know, that you can compete against other chess players. You get to travel with chess. Like I've been to at least 20 different states because of chess that I would have otherwise never gone to. So it gave me a lot of chances to travel and to be part of a community, meet other chess players. And that all chess players, you know, are, a lot of them are just very highly successful people in other, you know, career fields. And so it's really expanded my network a lot. And chess is also a science because in every position, there's objectively a best move. At any every given position, there is one move that is best better than any other move. Now, many positions, there are many moves that are probably 
somewhat equally good, but objection, objectively, you know, objectively, there's always a right answer in any given position in a chess game. Um, so you can look at it from a scientific perspective. And really, if you want, like, you know, run your computer analysis engine on it, you know, to, to see what the best moves might be in a given position. So it has that component of it as well. It's just always working. And you can always be working to figure out what the best way to play, the best possible continuations might be. So I think just those things alone is, you know, definitely brings a really interesting component, you know, from chess because people are interested in art. People love science. People love, you know, playing sports. So whatever benefits those things might bring, I think chess would bring just the same level of benefit, if not more, even in some ways, you know? So I think it's a very re uh, rewarding game in that sense. And then, you know, with that, I would also say like, you know, chess teaches you how to, how to use heuristics to come up to, to narrow down your choice of possible options. That is a huge thing in life because one of the best skills in life you can probably learn is how to say no, right? That's like, because we're always bombarded with options. So chess teaches you like, hey, I'm gonna quickly say no to all these moves just because they violate one of my major chess pr principles. I know that these are probably not good moves. I'm not gonna spend my time thinking about them. In life, like we can also have an analysis paralysis where we just get so bogged down with possible options. We just don't know what to do. We just freeze. And that can happen in a chess game as well, but you can't freeze because you have a clock that's winding down. You've got to quickly realize, hey, I gotta narrow this down to about two to three moves then I have to just go with one of them and just move it forward, move the thing forward, move the game forward. I just have to execute and go to the next steps. So I think that's a really valuable lesson that you can learn from chess. And then also I talked a little bit about the business side of it as well. You know, we talk about like the SWOT analysis in business, like your strengths and your weaknesses and so on and so forth. I think chess is a game where you're doing that on every move. You're looking at your strengths, you're looking at your opponent's strengths, your weaknesses versus your opponents. And every move creates a strength and an weakness at the same time. Anytime you're gaining something, you're also losing something with every single move. So knowing how to navigate through that, I think is such a translatable skill in life. Anytime you choose to say yes to something else, you're you're missing out because the opportunity cost of that yes was a no to millions of other things. So understanding how to say yes to the right things, I think is super important yeah. in chess and in life. That is very, that's very meaty, right? And I guess for you, in your own experience of, I guess, allowing chess to be, or allowing chess to play such a huge part in your life, um, what um, particular bright spots has that created for you in your journey, in your career experience, in your, in your just, you know, personal growth experience? And you've talked about a myriad of benefits, right? But um, do you have a particular bright spot that is created for you? I think for me, it's definitely going to be like, just like personal development, I would say. Um, I really love the idea of the process of mastery, achieving mastery in anything. I think it doesn't matter if you choose chess or basketball or cricket or piano, you know, it could be anything. But to become a master at anything, I think, takes a sort of discipline, goal setting abilities and skill sets that I think are highly valuable for just about anyone. Um, you know, I chose chess because that's the sport that I've been playing the longest. That's the one I knew that I was better than 90 percent of people already. So why not just continue with that one? 
Um, but it can be anything. It could be writing. It could be, you know, I don't know, most obscure sport you can think about. As long as your, your aim is to become, you know, in top of the field in that space, there's a lot of things you'll go through in that process, like learning how to really put in the work that's necessary, learning how to train, like the hours of training, but also how to train. You know, I personally have a chess coach that kind of t tells me, hey, you can, you know, he, his thing is that you can read hundreds of books, but that doesn't mean you're going to become a chess master because you're not training properly. You can dribble that basketball all day. You can shoot for 10 hours a day in the gym. But if your shooting form isn't correct, if you have bad habits that you're building through the, all that training, it'll be very difficult for you to become ever become a really top-notch shooter, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like just the, the steps and the processes, the the fixing of the errors, like you mentioned earlier, like making all those mistakes over thousands and thousands of games simply makes, makes you better as you then approach a new position. You will already, subconsciously, you'll know like, okay, I know that based on thousands of games I've played, if I put my knight here, something is going to go wrong. I don't know what that something is going to be, but I have a sixth sense that I probably shouldn't put this knight here. So you just kind of start getting that feel for it. And I think just kind of learning those kind of skill sets is has been super valuable for me because I can use that kind of paradigm when I approach other decisions in life, major decisions for career, choosing which spouse to marry, choosing you know where I should live, or is it a good time right now to invest in this particular market or stock, you know, when it comes to stock investing, for example, is it a good idea for me to buy a house right now versus not buying a house, things of that nature. I think that it can be very helpful in making like personal decisions for your life. Rafi, this is so funny that you, you started talking about, you know, some of the things that you learned on your journey towards becoming a chess master, because my, my, literally my next question that I wrote down for you is, um, what has been the biggest thing you have learned on your journey towards becoming a chess master? The, the, the one single thing that you just, that you can just hang your hat on, right? I would say like work ethic, mm -hmm. you know, like I'll, I'll quote, um, I think Muhammad Ali, he, he said this one time, he said that I hated every minute of training, but I told myself, don't quit, suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. Like, I feel like that's one of the most powerful quotes because like a lot of people love the, the glory and the amazingness, you know, like we look at Stephen Curry and like, man, that's natural gift. Like that guy's gifted. His dad's a shooter. His hand is shaped like that. We look at LeBron James. We look at Kobe. We look at Mozart and we look at Pablo Picasso. We look at, you know, these kind of people. And we say, these people have natural talent when in reality, time and time studies have shown that that's not the case. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote a book. Um, um, what is it called? A, uh, ten, the 10,000 hour sort of book. Um, anyway, whatever the name of the book is, like it's slipping my mind right now. Um, basically, he, he, one, of the, you know, one of the things that he showed in his, in his research is that as you look deeper and deeper into the lives of masters and experts in any given domain, it's very evident that natural talent like pure ability has little to do with it like it's actually the hours and hours and hours and hours that go behind it that people don't get to see that actually is what creates masters one of the most famous um you know in chess is also the the polgar sisters suzanne sophia and um, judith polgar came from um you know the daughters of um laszlo polgar who did a very famous psychological study on evolutionary uh, 
some sort of I forget the, the domain it was, but he basically showed that you can take a healthy you know child and make them into a world class expert in anything given the proper training. So I think that one of the biggest things I learned from chess is just like it is possible to become really good at something if you simply are willing to sacrifice a lot just to focus on the training and if you make that your priority. Like you've just got to be really, really disciplined in how you approach it, how long you approach it, and in what way you approach it. And I think that all those things are 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 only possible if you're dedicated and if you have the right instruction given to you. Like you have to not only just train, but you have to know what to train in and how to train also. So I feel like that's super important skill set. And that's that's my one nugget that I would say I would take away from chess. Okay, so I think this this conversation is just really naturally perfectly progressing <laughs> because um, I do want to shift the conversation just a little bit and and ask you for your personal formula on how to um, rise to the ranks of mastery in any industry. You know, whether it's something that's like a passion project or whether it's something related to just becoming a master at your, your craft in terms of, you know, professionalism or business, like what is your formula for rising through the ranks? Yeah. Um, I think that can vary obviously from domain to domain. There are so many different approaches to that. Um, but generally speaking, I think the first thing I would do is I would reach out to someone who is already a master at the thing that I'm trying to become a master at. Mm, like mentorship? Person, huh? Yeah, mentorship, we could say, yeah. Because that person will be able to tell you how not to waste your time doing certain things. That person will be able to tell you, hey, this, this is what you actually need to focus on. Because on your own, like you could be as dedicated as you want. You can have all the willpower and you, you could have all the time, all the dedication, all the time you know, that you put into it. But if you're not training the proper way, it is very difficult to achieve mastery, I think. So that would be the, my first thing. The second thing I would say is just, you really have to calculate out how much am I willing to sacrifice for this and for how long. So for chess, for me, um, by the way, the, the Malcolm Gladwell book is called Outliers, um, you know, where he talks about the 10,000 hour rule, like on, in chess, after 10,000 hours, people, a lot of chess players actually don't even get to master level. Like at barely after 10,000 hours of practice, like at least according to some research that has been done in this area, they tend to just become like a national master, which is basically the lowest level of all the masters, right? So imagine how much more time a grandmaster is putting in. Probably 20,000 hours takes is what it takes to become a grandmaster. Yeah. And so you have to know like, what is it going to actually take? And how, how many like how many hours or you know days of practice or whatever it might be? And am I willing to make am I willing to make that a priority for that length of time in my life or not? I think that's a really important question to ask yourself. Um, and the third component I would say is that you just have to have that tenacity inside of you to like, like just that Muhammad Ali quote I told you about. Like you, you're gonna, there's absolutely going to be days you're gonna gonna you're gonna hate it. Like there are absolutely days when I absolutely hate studying boring chess openings or like looking at these boring games from masters from years ago. It's just boring sometimes, right? You just have to keep in mind like that's part of the process. It's, it's, it sucks. Like when you play a game for six hours and you make the smallest mistake and because of that, you lose the whole game. You're completely winning. Six hours you put into it hard concentration, you make the tiniest mistake and you lose the game. That is very psychologically very difficult for a lot of people to handle. 
but you cannot let that discourage you. You've got to remember that that little mistake is not the reason that you lost the game. There's probably a host of other things that you've done wrong as well. You probably weren't aware of A and B, you learned a lot from that six hour mistake you know, game and mistake than you would have from a game that you won because now you know which areas to work on. So like not getting, you know, not being like not losing your motivation, like going, being able to go from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm, I think is going to, is like one of the most important skill sets of mastery in anything. Very cool. Well, um, I now have two more questions for you, right? So the first one is, you know, let's just connect the dots, you know, for our audience. Um, what do you believe would be or should be their biggest takeaway from our conversation today? Sure. I think the biggest, their biggest takeaway should be they should play chess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chess has more benefits than it has negatives. Um, not a whole lot of things that can go wrong from playing some chess. Um, the second thing is as they, you know, become better at playing chess, thinking about what am I learning from the game of chess that I can, I can translate into other areas of my life, whether it be business or my personal life, what are some things that chess has been teaching me that I feel like I can use a similar sort of structured thinking to, to come up with solutions and, and, you know, like shift through my, all the different options that I have in any one, one thing in life. Very cool. Thank you. And then my final question, Rafi, is uh, what can our audience do to help you on your journey? Hmm. One of my passions, you know, obviously is to like promote the game of chess just because I have benefited from it for such a long time. I think a lot of people can benefit from it if they were simply exposed to it. So one way they can help me is just by, you know, reaching out to me if they have any questions. Like, you know, I also do um, chess coaching just as a volunteer work, just because I love the game of chess. I'd love to teach people and help them learn. Um, so if anyone's, you know, on a journey to becoming a chess master or they just want to learn the game of chess or they have some question about chess or anything related to that, I'd love to, you know, talk to them and help them out. I don't charge any money. Like I don't do any chess, paid chess coaching of any type anymore even. Um, so yeah, I think that would be helpful for me because I get to promote one of my agendas, which is to basically to spread the game of chess and to see more people playing the game. Well, very cool. So audience, if you would love to connect with Rafi, you can go to the formula exchange.com in order to, um, get access to all of his links so that you can connect with him. Rafi, this has been such a rich conversation about chess strategy, and all of the myriad of things that you can extract from the game of chess. Thank you for sharing your time, your, your talent, and your, you know, your treasure of chess and, and what it means to you with me and the Formula Exchange audience. It's been a treat to connect with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lynn. I really enjoyed the opportunity and really enjoyed the conversation and the questions as well. Yes, yeah, same here. Thank you.